Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Moran, and welcome to the Golden Mike Experience. During the Holocaust, some six million Jews were brutally murdered, and our very first guest survived. Please welcome SRG resident Joe Hess to the show. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You know, you're 88 years old now, and we want to take you back many, many years. But when the Holocaust began, you were just a child. How far back do you remember? Pretty much all the way. It, uh, as you say, I was born in 1932. So when Kristallnacht happened in 1938, mm -hmm. I was six years old, getting on to be seven. I'd already started uh, school, uh, the Jewish school there. But it was very obvious, even at my young age, because uh, going to school was tough because the Hitler Youth would try to prevent us from going to school, and the headmaster used to have to come out with a whip and whip them away. Uh, very close to my father, we, going to synagogue, he used to be on his shoulders, he was in the choir, and then all of a sudden he was gone because before the Holocaust, they were taking men away. To, he worked on the Autobahn, all slave labor. People don't realize it started way early. So my memories are pretty good about that, but not much. I don't remember too much about the town. I remember little things about it. But uh, the critical part is uh, the, when the kinder transport came up. That, that really began my memory of, of what happened. Well, let's talk about that situation. Um, and it's interesting uh, also thinking about that time frame, how Franklin Roosevelt, the President of the United States, wasn't really interested at all in protecting the Jews, was he? It was worse than that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the senator. It's, it's immaterial. But there was a senator and a congressman that uh, introduced a bill to save 10,000 children. It never got out of committee. And that was purely on Roosevelt's hands. I think he did the same thing with the Japanese Americans. For some reason, he wanted a, a pure America or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we only had 26,000 people that were allowed to come in, and we had 300,000 Germans trying to get in. So you can imagine what was going on. Let's talk about the experience leaving, the United, uh, leaving Germany and getting to England. Well, first of all, uh, my parents, I don't know whether it was a fluke or whatever, who they knew, but they found out about the kinder transport and said, uh, I have a sister, by the way, that's six years older than I. Mm -hmm. And uh, they decided this was the best approach to escape. And uh, I didn't know about it. Then one day they said, uh, you're going to be going to England. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll be there shortly. So my mother, that was a fateful day, March 1939. Mm -hmm. My mother took us to the train. My father couldn't make it. It was too much for him. So my mother took my sister and I. My sister wanted to commit suicide. She didn't want to leave until my mother said, you've got to take care of your brother. So with a little suitcase, we got on a train in Frankfurt, Germany. And the next thing I know, we land in London. Took the boat train over and they land in London. And my future parents, my foster parents, or whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. the, the, the kind people, uh, we were in a huge hallway in Liverpool Street Station. Uh, if you go to Liverpool today, at the station, there's a statue outside of the Kinder Transport children. And he was a uh, taxi cab driver, and they had three children of their own. 
Taxi driver. No kidding. Uh, yeah, he was a taxi driver uh -huh. in London, and uh, they had enough feeling for what was going on to take on two other children. So in 1939, we ended up in London, and uh, we started our lives there. It was very difficult because I didn't speak a word of English. Uh, they didn't speak a word of German. Hmm. So my foster father was walking around with a dictionary and trying to communicate. Oh, no kidding. And that's about the only way we could communicate. And I had a strange feeling that I was still, my parents were still going to come over. This was not a holiday, but this was a short period in my life when my parents would come back. And then unfortunately, in the, uh, September 1st, the war broke out. And the British government decided that uh, all the children of London would be evacuated immediately. So September 1st, I don't know if anybody remembers this or even knows about it, but all the children in London were evacuated. I ended up on a farm by myself. Our family was just split. And my English parents decided this wasn't very good, so they bought a house in a town called Fletchworth, Hertfordshire, and we all ended up living there and spent the war years there. And uh, that was my introduction to England, the start of it. But from then on, going to school, uh, a little difficult because the war broke out. And of course, all my classmates' parents, or the fathers, were at war. And I'm German, and I'm a Jew, so I'm a little dirty German Jew. So a lot of fighting. But we survived. And we end up, I ended up making friends like anybody else. You, you start doing that. The teachers were pretty good except my geography teacher who used to come around every morning, slap me on the head and says, how's my little cake? How's my little German Jew? I remember that vividly. But uh, I was a pretty good student. So uh, if you're not familiar with the British system, you, when you reach uh, 11, you have to pass what's called the 11s. Yeah. And if you go on, you can go on to school that lets you go on to universities and everything else. Otherwise, you go into a vocational school. Well, I passed. And it looked like everything was going well. And then in 1944, 45, uh, my sisters were a lot older, so they were of dating age. So all the American pilots, so we had two American bases near us, Stape, uh, let me see, Bassingbourne and Staple Morden. And the pilots, co-pilots, and uh, bombardiers, they'd all come over to the house and want to date our, our, my sisters. and. That's where I became f first aware of things like Coke, chewing gum. <laughs> mm. they, they would bring things to the house. And uh, my foster sister fell in love with one of the GIs and they decided to get married. So the war ends in 1945 and uh, he, go he goes over to the continent, as we called it, and he came back and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but everybody's gone yet the whole family, and German kept great records. So he just said they were all dead, and that was it. And at that time, I was in, uh, in Manchester because one of my cousins, he was really emaciated, I really remember him. He got out of the Holocaust. He really was a survivor. Yeah. And uh, he took me under his arm, and he said, well, now that you don't have any family, you're going to be a rabbi. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. You know the tradition, he rips my collar because now I have yeah. to say shiver. My English mother got on a train the next day and came over, took me by the ear and said, you're not going to be a rabbi, you're going to be living with us. 
That's how good those people were. In essence, adopting you. In essence, saying you're one of us. Yeah. Without paperwork, without anything. When we come back, because Joe is going to reveal a shocking story that can only be described as a miracle, a miracle of miracles. Stay tuned. Joe, you were one of the brave kids. You mourned the loss of your parents. And then you were told that your mom had died and that your father had died. Is that correct? All the family, right. My grandmother, everybody. So you lost a lot in your family. Correct. But then, then there was a miracle. Mm -hmm. What happened? Uh, I went to school, of course. I graduated high school. Korea war, Korean War broke out. I ended up going into the Air Force. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I was not a citizen, so they didn't know what to do with me. They gave me a series of tests, and I was good in math and everything, and they put me into a, a research lab in Boston. And uh, I, I lived in Boston with... Uh, it wasn't a, a base or something like that, so I was fortunate I lived in the town. I met my wife there at that time, 1955, mm -hmm. and coming home from a date one night, my roommate said, Joe, your sister called. You better call her right away. So I called Elsa, and she said, uh, our dad's alive. Wow. So I went to bed. This is a true story. I went to bed because there's no belief in that. What, what do you mean he's alive? You know, it's, it's, it's been 17 years. Yeah, or what, so. probably shook your system. And it, you're dreaming about it. I get up in the morning, I go to work. My boss was Jewish. I said, Sam, I got a crazy call from my sister. My father's alive. They all knew the story. And he said, wow. So they went up to the front office. So the next thing I know, the Air Force got hold of me. It became a big story in Boston. And uh, they put me on a plane to see my father. And they said, how can we help? And I said, well, number one, I don't speak German anymore. So I, I, I'm going to need a translator. So they gave me a nice nurse to come with me. And we landed in Frankfurt. And the Time magazine uh, writer said, if you give me the story, I'll drive you to Fulda. So he did. Wow. And mm -hmm. we opened up the door. And... Uh, I met my father the first time in 17 years. Tell me what that feeling was like when you it saw was, each other. It was, I have a, upstairs I have a picture, I have lots of pictures, but my favorite picture is me just looking into his eyes and saying, this is my father, and he's looking at me, he recognized me, I recognized him. How would he recognize me being six or seven years old? And the real reality is that I have a scar in my head where my sister did something <laughs> to me. And he remembered that. And he said, and he threw his arms around me and we kissed. And uh, we couldn't communicate except through a third party. And it was just a wonderful feeling. But you have to realize how shocking that is. Absolutely. Uh, you, you walk in, I'm seeing my father for the first time. I actually have a father. 
Not to say that my foster father wasn't great. And they were, they were lovely people. But here's real blood. And uh, really, really shocking and meaningful. And um, we went walking in the town. I didn't know anything about the town. I didn't remember it. And he'd point out, this is where you had a picture taken. This is the Domplatz and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I'll stay in Germany. And I said, you've got to be crazy. After everything had happened, you're going to come back with us. So I took him to the embassy in, in Frankfurt, mm -hmm. arranged, and one year later, he came back to the United, to, into the United States. And that September, Marge and I got married. And under the chuppah was my real father, my foster father, and somebody else. Anyway, it was the strangest thing. And all those years afterwards, he lived vicariously through me. So he didn't have the opportunity for, to see me being bar mitzvah, me, all, you know, the school and everything else that a parent goes through. Yeah. But then he lived it through me because yeah. we had children and he enjoyed that and they got married and when he retired, he moved out to California with us and every Friday night we would have dinner, we'd go, we'd go Shabbat to service, we like would that. go to Shabbat every single yeah. week. He became a, a part of the minion mm -hmm. in the temple. There were other survivors that were part of our temple, so he was very comfortable. And uh, he lived to be 91. Did he ever learn the language, the English Oh, language? yes, yeah. oh, yes, oh, yes. He got a, uh, they, he ended up, I had an aunt in, uh, in New York, and he ended up being introduced to an, another lady and got married. And he worked in a sewing machine company, and uh, he did quite well, and he picked up the language quite well. I, I was surprised because at that age, you know, you don't pick up language that well, but he did wonderfully. What a story. What a story. Uh, what kept you going? Uh, there was so much pressure. What kept you going? The thing that kept me going is that I'm deeply religiously believe in God. I'm not orthodox, I don't, but I really believe that I got saved for a purpose. And here I was, one of 10,000, and I always said to myself, why? You, you question that. You hear six million, and I've been to Israel, and I've seen the picture of all the children that were killed, and I wasn't one of them, so I made it, it was my decision that I would pay back, and I would be the ultimate volunteer. Wherever I could, I was gonna do something for society, anything I could do to make society better, to make people love each other better, to career-wise, everything. I always volunteered to do things, and my goal was, I used to have a motto, I'd say, I'd, I'd like to make things happen, and I was, I was able to. You know, it's interesting, um, when you think, when you think, a lot of people have said, I mean, the Holocaust never existed. I'm, mm -hmm. sure, I'm sure you've run into that. Um, and obviously it has. And in your, in your lecturing, do you find that the younger generation um, understands that indeed there was a Holocaust? Absolutely. It's really amazing. Um, I've been t doing... Uh, well, I don't want to say a teaching episode, but talk about my experience mm -hmm. because they teach the Holocaust in a, in a school in Corona, which is heavily Mexican-American. Right. 
And the whole seventh grade of the school shows up. They sit on the floor, and I start my, you know, the typical kids, they're yakking away, and the teachers are going to have, be quiet, be quiet. I start my story, and it's silence. Because as soon as I mention the Holocaust, what it really was like, because they've heard about it, but now they're talking to a person that was really there. And if you, you'd ask me the effect, when I end up speaking, they line up to hug me. So I know I got through. And I always say, I hope you know you, you stop bullying and stop telling jokes about things. And I tell them that you know everybody's born tabula rasa and all the hatred starts either at home or with friends and it can be stopped and you're the next generation and you have to make it better. Uh, I had the opportunity two days, two days ago yeah. to talk to some teenagers in Fulda in Germany. I was asked to do the same thing. We did it by Zoom. And those kids amazed me because we read about the Holocaust, but there are a lot of people saying that it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But now that you've told us, because you're, I'm a Fulda resident, you know, as a kid, yeah. they said, wow, our parents didn't talk about it. Our grandparents didn't talk about it. Our great-grandparents didn't talk about it. It's not in the books. Why do you think they didn't? Uh, possibly because shame. Um, shame. They, 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 they've been shamed into it because think about this. You're a parent. Yes. It's now 1950, say. Right. Uh, we're sort of giving up. We, you know, we landed in Germany and we captured Germany and we stayed in Germany all those times. Now it's back to being German, mm -hmm. and you have to face your kids. What do you tell your kids? Because the kid is going to say, "Dad, you mean to say you approved all these this killing? You approved of getting rid of all the Jews in Fulda? How could you do that?" So to avoid that, they just didn't do anything. They closed the book. It's very similar, I think, I haven't done enough studying, but it's very right. similar to the Japanese situation where, where you had the Japanese, Japanese Americans, good American citizens, what did we do with them? We put them in a concentration camp. How many young people in the United States really learned about it and did anything about it? It was, they were over there, you know, somewhere else. It wasn't part of their lives. It's much easier to forget something like that instead of studying it, understanding it, and saying, you know what, it did happen, and I'm gonna do something that it won't happen again. I guess there are a lot of people who don't wanna relive it. That's, that's really the part of it in Germany. I really, truly believe that. Yeah. What are the questions that are most asked of you by the young people term, in terms of the Holocaust? Because you've been around a lot of young people. What are they asking you? Uh, personal questions like, you were put on the train or something, how did, how did you feel? And then they'll say, uh, when your father, say some of the questions that you asked, you know, how did you feel? Mm -hmm. And they'd always ask me something about family because they start thinking about themselves. And what is the most, the worst thing that you felt? And I say to them, not having a mother. And I said, think about six or seven years old, you're being put on a train, yeah. you're, you're coming to a new environment, very hot, you have a foster mother, but you really don't hug her, you really, it's not your mother. And when you go home at night and you've fallen on a bike and you've, you need a Band-Aid or something, you go home and you cry on your mother's shoulder and she 
hugs you and then everything else. That was all taken from me. And that's the, the worst part, is the fact that you say you lost your mother to a camp, but I lost my mother literally for being my mother and not having that relationship that, that Marge gave to our kids and our kids now give to my grandkids. I didn't have that, and that, that's a real missing link. Oh, yeah. and, and they appreciate that. that that's you know, another a aspect is one looks at your life speech. You know, uh, we have the situation with Hitler. Uh, and recently, not that he's Hitler by any stretch, but there's a lot of hatred that, that has come out of Donald Trump's mouth. Yeah. I'm, I'm part of the uh, uh, Levitt course that I take here, uh, the Zoom course at current events. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many times I've brought up the subject and I said, uh, when we had the, the situation and the, the, the uh, gang going in and taking over the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. On the 6th of January. And I said, uh, when that happened that day, and I said, reminded me of Kristallnacht. Same thing. Hitler said, the Jews caused us to lose the First World War. The Jews caused us. To and that lie kept on going and going and going and going. And gee whiz, sounds familiar to me. I didn't lose the election. It was taken away from me. I didn't lose the election. It take away. So the truth gets lost because the lie becomes the focal point. As you look back now and, and look to the future, um, how can we prevent another Holocaust from happening? Education, education, education. You gotta have, I'm not gonna be around that, that, that much longer. So you've got to start now. You've got to force education. For example, the anti-Semitism in the United States now and, and, and black matters and everything else. You're beginning to see the same thing you saw in Germany. And you're beginning to see that the country, the United States has the ability to overcome that. You see people, black and white, getting together when something happens for a black person getting killed. And you start to see that that's good. It's going to take a long time, but I'm really seeing, I'm very hopeful because I'm, I'm seeing the beginning that there are people here that are going to make this happen, that we're going to get rid of all the problems. It's very difficult. You know, slavery was here for many, many, many years, mm -hmm. and uh, the South never forgave the North. And I mean, I saw that when I went to school in Florida State. Even professors would, would talk to us and say that oh, the blacks don't have the brains that we have. They're, they're, they're smaller brains. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's all gone. And I think it's going to happen in the United States. It's the younger generation, and you see that now on TV, and you see that with uh, everything and all the communication tools that are available today. They're all starting to talk about being together, living together, I won't say loving each other, but when things happen, when you had the person that had a, a policeman step on his neck, mm -hmm. all over the United States, blacks, whites, got together and said, that shouldn't happen. 
Well, to me, that's wonderful because that didn't happen in Germany. They just went along with it. Yeah. Now I've, I've got great hope. But the thing that has to happen is that you have to teach that in school. You can't avoid it. We, we have to teach about all our mistakes in the United States. I'm a, I'm a good citizen now, so I can say that. But you have to talk about slavery. You have to talk about what happened to the uh, Japanese-Americans. You have to talk about what happened to the Indians. You have to talk about the past, and you learn from the past. And then if you learn from the past, you affect the future, and the future gets better. Our guest, Joe Hess, is anything but average. More of his incredible story when we return. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Moran, right here at the village at Northridge. This place, I can tell you, is gorgeous and it gives its residents a sophisticated blend of comfort, style, endless social opportunities, and an impressive array of recreational and wellness programs. You know what, it's like a resort here. 12 hour restaurant dining, a fully equipped fitness center, heated swimming pool, a theater, internet, lounge, arts and crafts room, I'm Bill Moran. Thanks for listening. Be cool and be healthy. We're sitting here with Joe Hess, and he's had a very, very dedicated career. A Holocaust educator, Air Force veteran, international space consultant, and leaders for the Jewish National Fund. What's your proudest moment? When I got married to my wife. And she's here. Ladies and gentlemen, what a beautiful, beautiful couple. This couple has been married 64 years. Who's the boss in the household? because I know I'm the boss in my house, I was, and I had my wife's permission to say so. The first two words I learned being married is, was yes, dear. <laughs> That's and, it. And it's worked very well. Yeah. How did the two of you, how did the two of you meet? Uh, as I said, I was in Boston in the military, and I lived on Beacon Hill. People know what Boston is, and. Boston, I, Massachusetts. And I used to eat in a little cafe there on Charles Street with a lot of um, people similar to me that were working in business and other things, and I was working in the government. And uh, one evening, uh, Margie's friend came up to me and said, uh, I'd like you to meet a nice Jewish girl. Yeah. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm listening to the hockey game. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when the hockey game is over, I'd be delighted to meet her. Uh, that's an absolute true story. So the game is over. She introduces me, and I said, oh, let's go have a drink. And we went over to the dollar bar, Silver Dollar, I think it was called, and um, they carded her. So they wanted to make sure her age was okay for drinking, so she empties the whole 
everything on the table. I said, she oh probably my. had a purse within a I purse. Said, I said, what's going on here? Yeah. But for some reason, there was an attraction there, and I felt like, hmm, I'd like to get to know her better. Yeah. And of course, now I know her age, now I know her birthday, yeah. and it turned out her birthday was next day. Next day? The very next day. So I what said- What did you do? So I said, I know what I'm gonna do. So I hired a young man, and I bought some flowers, and I said, I'd like you to get on the subway and go to Revere, Massachusetts, and deliver these flowers to this address. Unfortunately, I forgot one thing. I didn't put a card in there. So he brings the flowers over. There was no card. There was no card. She probably figured it was from you. <laughs> no, she, she knew. She said that uh, American boys didn't do that, so she knew it, it had to be from me. Yeah. And from that day on, when she gets flowers, and she gets lots of flowers, none of them have cards, and it's become sort of a, a unique thing between us and including the florist. <laughs> That's how we met. And... Uh, from then on, it was easy because I had a project that I was going to in Nebraska, but I said, we'll get married uh, the same year. So that was March the 3rd, and then we got married that September. It had to be interesting, though, for a young lady like, like your wife to have somebody send flowers having just met him. That, that to me, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. No, no it isn't. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> so you, you kind of, when you saw her, you really got the feeling that this, is, this has got a chance to go somewhere. Yes and no. I mean, I always felt that I did the right thing to people. I, I want to make f people feel good. It was her birthday. So I, I know it was her birthday. I don't, maybe we'll go on having dates or everything else, but, but it was the right thing to do. It's her birthday. Send her some flowers. Send her some candy or something. It just became obvious and part of me that says do it. I want to thank you, Joe, for visiting us here in the studio here at uh, The Village, thanking you for, for so many wonderful years that you told us about in your life, the way you helped mankind, what you went through, the future. You were a wonderful guest, and I say... We all love you, and here's to continued health. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, folks, many of you are 65 plus, and you might be interested in sharing your story. If so, you can email us at thegoldenmikeexperience at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Bill Moran. Take care, everybody. Bye.